views. And I think that's an issue with a lot of these religions is they get this sense of revelation and then they feel, oh, we have been communicated all of revelation, all of everything that that we were supposed to hear about the nature of reality and the nature of what it is to be human was communicated to us specifically. And it's really not about that. It's about we were given a sliver of the truth and we have to share it with the world. This was our sliver of truth that we were given. It's almost like the parable of the, the talents. Like we were, we were given this particular sliver, this particular talent, and it's our job to share that talent. That's how winning is done! This team, we fight for that itch. On this team, we tear ourselves and everyone else around us to pieces for that itch. We claw with our fingernails for that itch. This is where we hold them. This is where we fight! Hello, beautiful people. I am Matthew Harris, and it's time once again for the Matt's Mindset Podcast. So last week, we discussed the secret to life. And this week, we'll be discussing the nature of God. I know I'm really keeping the topics light. But in all seriousness, as uh, these topics require the utmost reverence and respect, I welcome discussion or critique of any of my work or anything that I have to say. These are my conjectures. As the Oxford professor of physics, David Deutsch said, we begin with a problem and then we solve that problem by putting forth conjectures. The only way that epistemological knowledge grows is by us taking issue with previous knowledge and we run into a problem, a contradiction, and the individual puts forth a conjecture that seeks to resolve that conflict. And then other people critique and discuss that conjecture until we reach a consensus. And then we can build a epistemological knowledge based on consensus. This is also known as dialectic discourse, which has its roots as so much else in the ancient Greek world. But it was really memorialized into uh, just fact in the, or perhaps uh, fact is not the best word, but consensus in the 19th century by Georg Hegel and Frederick Engels. And so there's a problem. As I said, we start with a problem, a status quo, a thesis, if you will, like a thesis paper. And this thesis comes into conflict with an, with an antithesis, with an antithesis and a contradiction happens between the previous knowledge, the previous grounding of knowledge and the new insight. And people put forth conjectures until we reach a good explanation. 
and then a synthesizing of the ideas is reached, a synthesis of the two of the thesis and the antithesis. And this synthesis then becomes a new thesis and more epistemological knowledge is created. So as such, these are my conjectures based on my reading and interpretation of the world's religions. So if this resonates, please feel free to let me know in the comments or by showing me support by liking and reviewing this podcast. And if you disagree with my conjectures, please let me know in the comments <laughs> or by leaving a review or in some other way, letting me know that why you disagree with my conjectures so that we can grow together and reach a more perfect truth. Because in the words of Phil Tutlock, the esteemed political science writer and professor at the Wharton School of Art and Sciences, beliefs and are hypotheses to be tested, not treasures to be protected. So without further ado, let's get into it, shall we? We begin with the idea of divine revelation, specifically Revelation 21.6 from the New Testament. I am Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the thirsty the wellspring of water without payment. So anyone can receive revelation. It doesn't have to be something entirely profound, like the nature of the universe, to be considered revelation. It can simply be a revelation of the way that life works, so that you can operate in the world in a better way. Because the more you learn about yourself, the more you learn about the world, and the more you learn about others, these are all revelations or insights. But the only way you can have revelations is if you're open to them. You can't really seek them. You must allow them. You live and then you examine. So it's not like you're sitting in a room all day and just kind of like trying to read or trying to force these to come to you, trying to force this web of connections. You're really just living and while you're while you're living things happen and then you're then going back and kind of reflecting and saying what happened how did i feel about it how does this mesh with my personal knowledge how does this mesh with the knowledge of others that i've created is this a unique experience to me or of other people experiences how does this compare with what i've read and what i've experienced before and to, to quote Socrates, this is the examined life. And the unexamined life is not worth living. But I also put forward a counterpoint to his quote, his quotation that the unlived life is not worth living. You must live and have true and bountiful experiences and then reflect on them to receive the revelation. As Tennyson said, better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. There have been innumerable revelations throughout history, the most important staying with us in sacred books, but also in famous works of literature, culture, and art. Richard Dawkins, the evolutionary biologist, would refer to this phenomenon as a meme. Memes, of course, as you know, are jokes or bits of information that are shared and take on a new meaning based on their multifaceted and layered meaning. Memes in our culture are funny and ironic because of the juxtaposition of ideas presented. But Dawkins, who ironically enough is a staunch atheist, would classify memes as cultural ideas or symbols that are transmitted from one person to another, 
much like genes are transmitted from one generation to the next. Memes are like cultural genes, which all generations that follow inherit. And when a sliver of revelation is introduced into society in the form of a meme, it will stand the test of time. When individuals receive revelation about the nature of what it is to mean to be human, or about the nature of reality, people resonate with it. Whether Plato's Allegory of the Cave, published in 390 BC, which we discussed last week, all the way to J.K. Rowling in the Harry Potter series, these are ideas that have been revealed to certain individuals who have then shared them with the general public. And the general public has agreed that yes, this is consensus, this is what is, this is the way, this is what it means to be human. I resonate with this experience and this journey. And when it comes to the nature of God, many of these truths have been revealed to prophets or religious leaders throughout history. In the words of Naval Ravikant, the Indian-American entrepreneur and investor, there are two kinds of fools, those who take religion literally and those who think it has no value. Religions are stories that lay out the specific mental models and morality and ways to live. Over the years, many have been bastardized to suit the limiting themes of consciousness we discussed last week. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to last week's episode where I discussed the themes of consciousness at length. But for now, suffice to say, all major religions of the world still have value and insight as they're all divine revelation and have stood the test of time. They are cultural memes which we have inherited from previous generations. And just like genes, Cultural memes are put through the gauntlet of survival of the fittest. There are many forms of Christianity that existed in 300 AD, for example, that don't exist now. Examples being Gnosticism, Arianism, and Donatism. But as religions grow, they become inflexible. They become treasures to be protected and not hypotheses to be tested. For example, for me and my part, I reject the concept of original sin, which is kind of a cornerstone of Christian teaching. The knowledge of good and evil is what makes us fundamentally human. Having free will is what makes us fundamentally human. If we don't have the knowledge of good and evil, we don't have free will because we can't make rational decisions, and therefore we can't have committed original sin. It's an allegory, in my opinion, that's meant to explain why suffering exists in the world. And it claims it's because of us, because of humanity. Because it's tough to justify why a benevolent God would allow suffering if he's all-powerful and all-benevolent. It's a contradiction. It's a problem. So the conjecture that the writers of Genesis put forward was that it was our fault, not God's. That suffering exists in the world. It must be because we're bad, not God. We fucked up, not him. It was a conjecture put forward to explain a problem, which I just happened to disagree with. And so I put forward one of my own conjectures. I think the answer to this problem is where the Buddhists and the Taoists get it right. Suffering is the result of cause and effect, or karma as they would put it. For each action that you take, there will be a reaction. Polarity and equal and opposing forces are are a fundamental part of the universe. According to the tradition of Taoism, There's a yin and a yang and a chi force that holds it all together. According to the standard model of particle physics, there is also a proton and a neutron, which are held together by the strong force. This is the same conjecture which was revealed, recorded, and agreed upon 
and has become epistemological knowledge. So it's interesting to me that a religion, or more of a tradition, I'd say, had the same conjecture about the nature of things thousands of years ago and using a different method to gather epistemological knowledge, our scientists have come up with a very similar explanation of the nature of the universe. And so this would be, I think, a good explanation. There is both space and void in the universe, chaos and order, love and hate, and by definition, good and evil, joy and suffering. Evil and suffering does not exist in the world because humanity created it. Evil exists because it's a fundamental part of what is. Now the Buddhists give us a good toolkit to work with as well. Meditate. Detach yourself from desire as the root of all suffering and be in flow with what is. Be in harmony with the universe. Now I don't mean confine yourself to a monastery and never want for anything ever again. When I say detach from desire, what I mean is understand what you want why you want it, and then take inspired action towards it. But don't force it. Don't harm yourself or others trying to get it. Take action and allow it to come to you. And if it passes you by, consider that perhaps it was a desire that was not in your highest good, and something better is simply coming along. Such advice, I think, is a good explanation because it can be reflected in both the Taoist and Stoic traditions. Taoism and Stoicism evolved independently of one another, and yet are kind of the Eastern and Western philosophical mirrors of one another. Revelation knows no boundaries or borders. Some of the most valuable memes contributed by Christianity are the parables that Jesus would tell. They're stories that really deconstruct truth in the same way that Jacques Derrida would go on to do nearly two millennia later by pioneering his philosophy of deconstruction. The theory of deconstruction holds that binary oppositions in literature are not mutually exclusive, but rather interdependent. Basically, he argues there is no end-all be-all moral of a story. By deconstructing a story, we can reveal multiple and at times conflicting messages. And no one really does this better than Jesus of Nazareth. For example, the parable of the prodigal son, where you have a son who goes to his father and asks for an advance on his inheritance, and the father is like, sure, you know, respects his wishes, gives him the advance on his inheritance. And the youngest son then goes off, frits it away on sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and all the quote-unquote good things in life, has a great time, lives a dream. And he, uh, he lives out all of his most basest desires, like whatever, use your imagination really. And like basically whatever your basest desires, whatever you want, whatever you think he could have, he, he has it. And he ends up running out of money. And at that point, he's really only able to get a job as someone who takes care of pigs. And pigs, according, this is kind of important because according to Jewish tradition, are some of the lowest of all the animals in their minds, which is uh, why kosher law prohibits consuming of pork. But taking care of pigs, he really makes like little to no money at all. And he can't even afford food and he hits rock bottom when he finds himself eating the shells of pea pods that the pigs leave behind. 
And finally, as he kind of has this revelation where he's at this rock bottom state that he realizes that, you know what, like I should just shelve my pride, go back home, beg my father's forgiveness. And I'll tell him that why don't, while I don't deserve to be your son, I will beg to be your servant and I'll work in your household because I know that at least you'll pay me well and you'll treat me well. And I don't really, he says like, I don't really expect to be welcome back this year as your son, but I'm going to just beg for your forgiveness, ask for a job. And so that's what he does. He goes back home, begs forgiveness for his father. And this is, I think, a pretty quintessential human experience when you've been off the path or you've been you know, f fulfilling all of your basis desires and then something terrible happens and you're kind of, you know, get on your knees and you're like, I will like, I'll change. Like you make a deal. You're like, I'll change. I promise I'll change if you just don't allow this to come to pass. I promise I'll change if this happens for me. And so what happens? The father runs out, embraces him, cries, you know, throws a richly embroidered cloak around his shoulders, welcomes him back as his son. And then the father asks his staff, his servants to slaughter like one of the you know, fattest calves that he was saving. They're gonna have a huge celebration because his son has returned. And this is a great like uh, allegory, of course, for when you go off the path and then returning to, you know, returning to God or returning to the, you know, returning to the, the path or returning to the faith. And the older son, who of course has been dutiful and been helping out on the farm and being a good son and is not, he's not demanded his entire, his inheritance. He's been like just towing the line and living, you know, a pretty good life. And he's, but he's just like a little bit miffed at seeing this treatment. And he's like, I mean, I'm the one who stayed here. I'm the one who did everything you asked me to do. And like, I'm the one who's been praying and treating people well and doing this and that. And you've never like thrown me a party or slaughtered a calf or like, you know, it seems like you haven't really treated me like the way that you're now treating the guy who just like kind of used all your money and, and, you know, told you to fuck off for weeks at a time. And now it's just come back. Like, don't you think that's a little messed up? And the father says, rejoice because it was lost and now it's been found. And that's it. That's the end. And so these types of parables which Jesus was so famous for basically explodes the concept of narrative because in their telling, he's not super concerned with the idea of objective truth or a specific moral. He's exploring perspectives in these stories because the son, the oldest son is correct to be annoyed that he's, he's doing everything right. And yet seems like he's not being given special treatment. Like his, his life seems to himself just as hard as the youngest son. But the older son, if you look at it this way, might overlook the fact that he's always enjoyed the benefits of a stable, happy life of fulfillment because he never left home. He always had food, a warm place to sleep, the support of his friends and family. He had a whole multitude of things that the younger son didn't have. And meanwhile, the younger brother, while he got to have some base pleasure for a limited amount of time, was then forcibly redirected and experienced a period of tremendous suffering before being welcomed home. So really both perspectives are correct. It's not that one is better than the other or that there is one who's morally objectively better than the other or that either son was really correct in the way that they lived their lives. These are perspectives to be considered and these are both conjectures that Jesus puts forward. And truth is like a sculpture that one perspective will never lend true understanding.
If, for example, if three blind men were to encounter an elephant and all three attempted to articulate what the nature of an elephant was, they would naturally put their hands on the elephant. And the one who touched the trunk would say, an elephant is like a snake. The one who touched its side would say, no, an elephant is like a strong wall. And the one who touched its ear would say, no, the elephant is like a fan or a palm frond. And all three would be correct based on their perspective, but none understand the fundamental nature of the elephant unless they talk to each other and share their perspectives, share their conjectures. And the same is true of religion and the religions of the world. So what I think Catholicism and much of Christianity on that note gets wrong is guilt. Guilt for enjoying life. Guilt and shame are perhaps some of the worst limiting beliefs and themes of consciousness, and they are put forward to try to control the masses. Christianity at its height in the Middle Ages was, as Karl Marx would say, the opium of the people. It was there to provide a salve for a terrible existence. And, but also in a little bit of a nefarious way to keep people in the depths of shame and guilt to limit their consciousness. There's a uh, fantastic, probably the, the most famous and most incredible, in my opinion, part of the book, The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, where, so he's writing in the 19th century about an incredible time of industrial evolution and incredible time of spiritual evolution occurring in Europe. And he's reflecting on the church, basically, about how the parable, I guess, Dostoevsky uses is called the Grand Inquisitor. And Jesus comes back and appears to the Grand Inquisitor, who in the Middle Ages, and says, like, I'm, I'm back, like, but tell everybody, like, it's, it's time for judgment, like, like, the kingdom of God is here. And the Grand Inquisitor basically says to him, uh, no, like things, things are great, right? Things are too good for us right now. You know, things are too good for our Christianity and the church for you to come back right now. So like you, you just need to leave. Like, <laughs> and Jesus is like, you sure? I mean, this is it. You're not going to get another shot. Like you're the guy who can make this call and I'm here to, to save everybody. And the Grand Inquisitor basically says, no, like we got everything handled. Like, thanks for your help, but we got We don't need you anymore. Like we've got everything handled here. And so Jesus let, like leaves and that's, that's the end of it. Like he's, and I think that's a very interesting poignant point about how the church at that time really was, had moved away from the teachings of Jesus and really were just creating an edifice here on earth. And so that's, I think something basically the pros and cons of Christianity. I think there are a great many practicing Christians who do a great job and it's a good moral bedrock, but it's only one perspective. And so on that note, Judaism, on the other hand, is a bit more of a birthright. So you're born into this religion. You can't really join. And you you come to the understanding in the value of what a relationship with God looks like if you choose to. I know there's just ethnic Jews as well. But if you are in, in the spiritual practice as well, that, that often you kind of have to understand what your relationship with God as a member of the original chosen people looks like. And oftentimes that involves suffering and resilience of following that spiritual path. And that's kind of there 
If you look back at their history, that's kind of their story, is that they often stray from the path and so have to be forcibly redirected. And often violently, if you look at it, like back into communion with God, whether it was as slaves in Egypt or the Babylonian exile or their predicament today. It's a uh, running theme of the Old Testament is they there'll be some crisis and they turn back to God and God tells them what to do. And they have a prophet who then leads them to the promised land, whether literally or figuratively. And then they're happy for 10 years or whatever. They're happy for X amount of time. And then they turn away from God again. And God has, to, whether he causes it or whether the crisis happens on its own, the crisis happens and then they turn back, they have to turn back to God. So that's kind of the reoccurring motif in the Jewish story. And I think it can be applied to anyone's life or spiritual journey. And so this pretty much defines the Torah, the Old Testament. And so when you're living or acting in ways that are not of service to yourself or others or your highest good, you, you know, like, like the younger brother in the parable, you'll be able to maybe enjoy yourself for a short time, but you'll always be redirected. And I, like I said, I think that's can be applied to anyone's journey or spiritual journey. And Islam is interesting because they, Islam Muslims basically see themselves as a culmination of the Abrahamic religions, the Abraham, Abrahamic religions being Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And I'll touch more on that for a second, but to do so, I have to go, go back, go back to the beginning, go back to Genesis. Because in the book of Genesis, in uh, specifically Genesis uh, 15, 9 through 17, Yahweh asks Abraham to bring a heifer, so like a cow, a goat, and a ram, and saw them in half. <laughs> it's funny because the Old Testament is just full of this like crazy stuff and like it's these crazy images. But this is the historical context for that. This is this is how covenants were sealed back then. Obviously, cows and livestock are valuable. They're a very valuable part of your you know, they're basically assets. Like if you were thinking about it back then, it's like having, you know, a certain amount of assets. So you only really did this when you wanted to make a very, 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 like think of like Harry Potter, like the unbreakable vow, like you're really making a unbreakable vow. So this was how covenants were sealed back then as you would both take, both parties would take some of their most valuable assets and they would saw them in half and so there would be and put each kind of create like a little gauntlet, create a little walkway and the blood obviously would be like flooding in the middle of it. And then both of you would walk through it together, holding hands. So it was like a contract and this sealed the contract. And when both of you walked through the blood together, it signified may what happened to these animals happen to the person who breaks this contract. So it was like, like I said, the, pretty much the most serious covenant unbreakable vow that you could make like it was literally saying if i break this vow that i'm making to you may i be sawed in half so pretty 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 uh, aggressive but uh instead of so in genesis this is what happens so abraham does that god asks him to do this abraham cuts the the cow and the goat and the ram in half and arranges them properly but before he can walk through, God puts him in a trance. And then God personifying as a torch, then 
kind of floats through, walks through the pathway, walks through the blood by himself. So meaning it's not really even like, it's interesting because you really have to interpret this. Like basically that means that like, if since Abraham didn't walk through, God's basically saying, we're making this covenant together that you're my chosen people and I'm your God. But if either of us breaks this covenant, then what happened to this cow, what happened to like this, this ram will happen to me and me alone. So if either of us break this contract, what happened to this cow is going to happen to me and not to you. And so obviously, as we talked about when the, the Jewish, according to Jewish tradition, when they do break the covenant again and again and again and again, uh, God then sends his son to fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah to die for man's sins and reconcile man to God. That's kind of the whole prophecy. It's kind of, it's kind of how it all flows together. And so, of course, yeah, we can talk about a, like a lot of ramifications from that. But the whole point is when Christianity then became a power structure, like as we just talked about, when the Jesus shows up to the Grand Inquisitor, for example, like the way that Dostoevsky is kind of articulating they once again broke their covenant with God. So it was like God sent his son to die for man's sins, of course. But when Christianity then turns its back on God, the angel Gabriel, yes, that angel Gabriel comes to Muhammad and basically says, they've both lost their way. Now it's up to you. Like I'm giving you divine revelation, like go to the cave and write. And so that's why Islam is like a really interesting religion. I think there's a great many essential truths there as well, because I think probably in the most, in my opinion, the most important truth to take away from Islam is the idea of, of supplication. And so the word Muslim literally means submission. It means submission to God. Like you have to submit to God because he knows best. Like he's time is relative. We understand this from science we understand that that time exists as a kind of a fourth dimension you got you have space and you have time and you have matter and then you have space time you obviously have like gravity but it's like a completely separate thing and so time is is relative and so god is someone as a we'll talk about the nature of god later but as someone who's basically completely independent of the construct of time, he can already see the past, present, and future. He's already aware of everything that happened and everything and how everything's going to turn out. And so he knows what you need to do before you do. And I think this is the true strength of Islam because it's, it's almost like it's like a coming home. Because when we're young, we have to depend on the absolute authority of our parents to survive. And then eventually we come to an age even if we're still under their care, where we discover that they're fallible, just like us. And we have to rely on our own rationality and develop a sense of self. And so that's like a very important part of development is we, we have to develop our own sense of self and our own sense of right and wrong and our own sense of morality. If we have any, if we have any ambition and we're trying to accomplish something for the good of ourselves and others, along the way, we'll encounter a problem a challenge, a situation that will make us naturally reach back out to God because it's a challenge that might be so severe that we just can't handle it on our own. It's like the, uh, as I talked about, the kind of the come to Jesus moment where you have to, you know, make a deal. And uh, 
and God will tell us what we need to do. But often the message will be a little bit crazy. And that's once again, a a reoccurring motif in the Old Testament, whether it's Jonah and the whale, where he tries to jump out, tries to escape. Like you see that with most of the prophets. And so we need to have the faith to follow through with it. We need to submit. And I think that's an incredible message that Islam gets very right, is that it's not, this is probably one of the hardest things to do as the Imam. An Imam is basically like a rabbi or a priest in the Islamic tradition. Uh, So the Imam Omar Suleiman said of Malcolm X that perhaps one of the most famous you know, Malcolm X being one of the most famous converts in American history. And if you know anything about Malcolm X, you know he's probably, yeah, he's not big on submission. <laughs> Said that submission is one of the hardest things to do, especially for the highly ambitious and successful people. And it's no different from Jesus telling people in the Gospel of Matthew to be like children, to, as Jesus would say, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So it's a very, once again, good explanations come from multiple sources. They're difficult to alter or change. I think this is a good explanation. Uh, But submission, of course, requires introspection and a personal connection to God. And Islam suffers from the same problems, I think, as Christianity as a bit of a power structure in that they've... uh, They're obviously not all of them great practicing Muslims, great practicing Christians, but there's certain bad actors that take its message, of course, to promote their own physical agendas here on Earth. And most notably in the form of radical Islamic terror, or and they use it in a similar way to Christianity in the Middle Ages, which provide a salve for injustice and terrible lives and use it to repress individuals, especially women in certain Arab nations. So I think a fundamentally incredibly rich religion religion and tradition that also has suffers from a lack of taking in multiple perspectives. And I think that's an issue with a lot of these religions is they get this sense of revelation and then they feel, oh, we have been communicated all of revelation, all of everything that that we were supposed to hear about the nature of reality and the nature of what it is to be human was communicated to us specifically. And it's really not about that. It's about we were given a sliver of the truth and we have to share it with the world. This was our sliver of truth that we were given. It's almost like the parable of the the talents. Like we were, we were given this particular sliver, this particular talent, and it's our job to share that talent, but it's not, the lone truth. It's not the only, it's not the end all be all. Just because you're good at basketball means that everyone who's not good at basketball is not right in following their talent or their truth. It's like whatever you were given, you are supposed to share. You're not supposed to say, this is the way. You're supposed to say, oh, this is what I believe. Let me see how that meshes with what you believe. And so these these are the so-called Abrahamic religions. So and they're so-called because they stem, at least theologically, from Abraham. You have Judaism and then by extension Christianity, which extends from Abraham and then eventually to David and from David to Jesus. And so that's Abraham's son, Isaac. And you have Islam, which extends from Abraham's son, Esau. And so those are the Abrahamic religions. 
and Buddhism and Taoism, on the other hand, are Eastern religions and developed independently of Western or Middle Eastern social and theological thought. And while Christianity and Judaism and Islam, as I said, all contain their essential truths, I think Buddhism and Taoism get closest to the actual nature of reality and the nature of God. So I think that Christianity, Judaism, and Islam provide valuable messages about how to kind of live and exist in the world and how to move forward and how to live fulfilling lives in relation to God. I think that Buddhism and Taoism get the close closest to the nature of actually the nature of God. Alan Watts, I think, does a, a phenomenal job. He's a English writer and speaker known for interpreting and popularizing the Eastern religions and traditions of Buddhism, Taoism, and Hinduism for a Western audience. And so he would describe the nature of, of God as such. So just a thought experiment. So suppose you were God. Suppose you have all the time, all the eternity, all the power at your disposal. What would you do? Suppose, suppose you were given the power to dream any dream you wanted to every, any night, every night. So you basically can lucid dream, but like in full control of it. Naturally, you could dream any span of time. You could dream 75 years of time in one night, a hundred years in one night, a thousand years of time in one night, and it could be anything you wanted. So you make up your mind before you went to sleep tonight, I'm going to dream of so-and-so. Well, naturally, you would start out by fulfilling all your wishes. You would have all the pleasures you could imagine, the most marvelous meals, the most entrancing love affairs, the most romantic journeys. You could listen to music such as no mortal has heard and see landscapes beyond our wildest dreams. And for several nights, or maybe for a whole month of nights, you will go on that way having a wonderful time. But then after a while, you begin to think, well, well, I've seen quite a lot. Let's spice it up. Let's have a surprise. Let's have an adventure. And therefore, you would dream of yourself being threatened by all sorts of dangers. You would rescue princesses from dragons or perhaps engage in notable battles. You would be a hero. And then as time went on, you would dare yourself to do more and more outrageous things. And at some point in the game, you would say, tonight I'm going to dream in such a way that I don't know that I'm dreaming. So that you would, you would take the experience of the dream to complete reality. And what a shock when you wake up. You, would, you might really scare yourself. And then on successive nights, you might get yourself to experience the most extraordinary things just for the contrast for when you woke up. You could, for example, dream yourself into situations of extreme po poverty, disease, or agony. You could work on the vibration of suffering and then suddenly wake up and find, after all, it was nothing but a dream and everything is perfectly okay. Well, how do you know? That's not what you're doing already. And once again, I think this is an interesting thought about experiment and good explanation because you can see it play out in the lives of people. Like for example, J. Paul Getty of Getty Gas, like gas stations and oil. Uh, if you read his memoir, it's, it's pretty interesting because he, of course, was, you know, he was born into a relatively wealthy family. I believe his father was a lawyer. He lived in uh, Los Angeles before it was really like super popularized. But he, oil back then was the big rush. He, you know, he was smart, but also he was driven and determined, goes out. He eventually, you know, is a, a big entrepreneurial story, kind of like a hero's journey story. He finds it well, it becomes a big producer. He makes you know, a shit ton of money, 
you know, a couple million dollars back then. So obviously more than enough to retire. And he does so. He basically goes back to LA at you know, age of 25, 26 and basically retires and then has any sort of pleasure that he can imagine. He goes and just spends his time eating the finest foods, betting the finest women, just enjoying life. And he does that for about a year and then he just gets really bored. And so then he comes out of quote unquote, comes out of retirement and basically begins to build this empire that began, that became the Getty empire. And so makes it bigger and starts you know, investing money, starts building his empire, buying different companies, making sure it gets bigger, making, bring, you know, bringing his, his services and business overseas, just creates kind of this giant empire. And then he's once again, kind of says like, well, well, that was, that was pretty good. That was crazy. What do I do now? And that's when he kind of turns to art, turns to philanthropy. He starts making it, trying to make a difference in the world. And now, of course, you can, if you see like the, the Getty Museum, there's two of them in Los Angeles now. There's an incredible art museum, multi, multi-million dollar art museum. And his uh, villa, one of his villas in Malibu is once again, a giant art museum, which now has become a museum. And so it's kind of a similar thing of like, if you had that money, if you had millions of dollars at the age of like 25, it's like, what would you do? It's like, if you could dream any dream, it's, well, you'd probably fulfill all of your earthly pleasures and then you'd get really bored. And so then you would strive for a bigger and bigger and bigger challenge. And so I think that once again, coming from different, not necessarily revelation, but coming from different sources, being, yes, this is a fundamental human experience. It's a good explanation. So that being the case, we, I think, are the universe. Science confirms it because we are made of stardust. You know, we are made from the Big Bang. We are made from the same atoms that, that occupy the rest of the world. We're same from, made from the same molecules. And that's why Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself because our neighbor is ourself and we are simply different reincarnations of ourselves dreaming the dream that we are not fundamentally from source and each soul continues on its journey and that's why we have indefinitely repeating cycles of birth strife revelation death and rebirth caused by the karma and cause and effect of our past lives and by generational trauma so not only is the cycle happening on a grand scale of you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years, a scale of lifetimes. It's happening every day, it's happening every month, it's happening every six months, it's happening every year. And when we finally learn all the lessons from a certain perspective, when we reach, we, according to the Buddhists, we reach a state of moksha, which is a transcendent state attained as a result of being released from the cycle of rebirth. So we, we retire that perspective, having learned all the lessons, having learned all the truth from that perspective, having completely exhausted that part of the elephant and truly gotten to know the nature of reality from that perspective. So in the same way that Christianity and Judaism and Islam all have their own unique perspectives, they're all, that's, that's all they are. They are perspectives and we need to bring our perspectives together to actually achieve truth like the, in, theoretical physics, for example, you have like the theory of relativity and the theory of gravity, and then you have the theory of quantum mechanics, and you have the theory of the standard model, and they all serve to explain specific phenomenon in the universe. But we're still looking for that theory of everything that connects the three together. 
Like that doesn't mean that quantum mechanics and gravity, like one of them has to be correct. Like it doesn't mean that one theory is better than the other. It just means that these are fundamental truths that we right now think are the, the best explanations for why things happen. And we're still looking for that theory that really unifies all of them into like a theory of everything or a theory, a more perfect truth. And so when we can finally truly love ourselves and by definition others, the kingdom of God will be here. Like according to Buddhist tradition, Nirvana, basically the equivalent of, you know, Buddhist kingdom of God, the Buddhist heaven. It's, it's not like kind of a Christian understanding of heaven or paradise. It's like, it's not a location that you go to. It's not a place. It's a, it's a state of being. It's a theme of consciousness. It's a condition when you are not compelled by fear or by desire or by social commitments. It's when you can hold your center and just act from there. The, uh, the covenant in Genesis that we talked about was always with ourselves. That's why God walked through the cow's blood by himself because we are all just different perspective of God having a human experience. So the, the covenant wasn't with God and Abraham. The covenant was with God and himself because Abraham was just a specific perspective of God having a human experience. And as Jesus said, eye is not seen and ear is not heard what God has in store for those who love him. And so by definition, love themselves in the truest sense. He didn't say, oh, like heaven is a place you go to as a reward after you die. He said, eye is not seen and ears not heard what God has in store for those who love him. It's a theme of consciousness. It's a experience that you can have. And so by loving yourself, you're loving God. And by loving God, you're loving yourself. And by loving others, you're loving yourself and God. Now, here's the kicker for the whole thing. Just, just a mic drop on you. We may be the universe, right? So we, we, been, we may be the like the perspectives of God having a human experience, right? But the universe still came from somewhere. I'm not talking about just like our universe. Like, I mean, the fundamental, fundamental nature of all things came from somewhere, which is like a big, you know, the big question of like religion and big question of science is like, where did we come from? And so here's where I think the Taoists take the cake, then save, save, save one of the best for last. Not that it's better than the others, but I think just gets closest to the true nature of God is their tradition, I think comes closest to explaining the nature of all it is because they don't try to explain things in language that is not suited to explain the unexplicable. And that's not to say that the unexplicable cannot at one point become explicable or explainable. I think that we, once to quote David Deutsch again, I think that it's a bad explanation to just say, oh, it's, you know, God is unknowable. And that's why, you know, we shouldn't even bother to try to explain or try to know him or it or whatever. Like it's, that's basically kind of in the, in the words of Tim Ferriss, the entrepreneur saying, oh, it's hopeless, I'm not going to do anything, or, oh, it's in the bag, I'm not going to do anything. It's It leads you to the same result, having re relentless pessimism and having relentless optimism leading to the same outcome. So you really need to find somewhere in between. So like, just because right now a phenomenon is inexplicable doesn't mean we won't always not have the tools for it to be explicable. But for the in the current moment, I think that Taoism does the best job at explaining the unexplicable by 
similar to Jesus's parables, they use imagery that is almost like kind of anti-narrative in nature. It's a perspective. And they focus on the use of allegory and metaphor kind of in the same way that Plato does to explain the truth that, or the truth as they see it. So the Tao, the Tao Te Ching is their, I wouldn't necessarily even say holy book, but kind of their center, the, it lays out all their, their traditions. It begins with these words. The Tao that can be understood is not the cosmic Tao, just as an idea that can be expressed in words is not the infinite idea. And yet this ineffable Tao is the source of all spirit and matter, and in expressing itself is the mother of all created things. The Tao is obsessed with the idea of immateriality. So once again, I think this is, uh, yeah, this is verse 11. So there, the Tao is basically just obsessed with the idea of, of understanding something it's almost like another person like you can never really fully understand what it's like to be another person that's like what the modernist writers like james joyce were trying to do was like trying to fully immerse you in the experience of what it was like to be him like if you read ulysses his kind of magnum opus it's pretty unintelligible because he tried really hard to just write in a stream of consciousness he really tried really hard to take you through a day of what it was like to be him. And because of that, it's very random and disjointed because that's kind of how existence is. Like you're walking through life and random thoughts come into your brain and you follow them for a little bit and then you go, oh, what was I doing? And then you, you know, focus on your task. And so he was really trying to bring you into that moment of what it was like to be him. But it's pretty impossible to really truly know what someone else's experience is like. And the Tao is kind of obsessed with that idea of like, immateriality so for example like a they would say a wheel may have 30 spokes but its usefulness lies in the empty hub a jar is formed from clay or in our case like glass but its uh, usefulness lies in the empty center a room is made from four walls but its usefulness lies in its empty center matter is necessary to give form but its true value to reality lies in its immateriality so everything that lives has a physical body, but the value of a life is measured by the soul. So that's verse uh, 11 of the Tao Te Ching. And so this harkens back to, like I said, Plato's idea of the idea of ideal forms. It's like the hammer that you see is not a true hammer. The table that you see is not a true table. Like uh, what makes a jar a jar? It has empty, it has empty space. That's the fundamental nature of a jar as it is designed as a vessel. What makes it valuable is not its matter, but its lack of matter. It's designed specifically with this unthingness in mind. If it was, if it was solid, it wouldn't be a jar, it would be useless. So therefore the ultimate intelligence, the really real God, the most high, whatever you want to call it, he isn't a thing at all. It's neither chaos nor order. It's neither love nor hate. It's neither good nor evil. It does not conform to the fundamental nature of reality because it is not of this reality and cannot be constrained by the rules of such reality. As uh, Professor John Fervanke, uh, the professor of psychology from the University of Toronto would put it, the ultimate intelligence is a no-thingness, which is not the same as nothing. And it's not the same as void because we can enter into a profound relationship with that no-thingness. And so if you think that's a little too abstract, then I'll ground that into uh, something that's a bit closer to reality. 
Because like I said, just because something's inexplicable doesn't mean it will always be unexplainable and will always be something that we can't have the tools or language to describe. So consider this, when you meditate, you can become an observer of your thoughts, feelings, and impulses. You can observe the observable mind. You can notice what's there. You can track the thoughts, you can note them, and then you can return to an anchor, like the breath or a candle or a mantra. So you're basically sitting there and you'll be trying to follow the breath and then thoughts or impulses or emotions will come in and you can say, oh, look, you know, look a thought, look an emotion, and then you can kind of just let them go and return to the anchor. But who is doing the observing? Who is observing the thoughts, the emotions, the impulses? You can't observe who's doing the observing. So like you can, you are sitting there and you're observing things come and go, but you're, you can't really look at who's doing the observing because that's the seat of the mind. Nothing can observe the observing self, which does not identify as a gender or a sex or even a self. Like this is kind of the fundamental nature of the problem of consciousness. It's like, what is it? Is it an, like, it's an emergent phenomenon. What exactly is the nature of consciousness? And that's the, it's a, it's a no thingness. It, it does not have desires or thoughts or impulses or dreams or emotions. It's pure awareness. It's peace, it's satisfaction, it's a blue sky that always exists far above the swirling and constantly changing clouds of emotion and thought. And that is the no thingness within you. And the no thingness within you can come into greater contact with the ultimate intelligence, which is the ultimate no thingness in the pure awareness that is peace and satisfaction. And that is the nature of God. Light and love, my friends. Go in peace to love and serve. Siamo di un altro pianeta E ci baciamo la notte a testa in giù Il cuore sull'altalena Stasera è la mia sera E sto su un altro pianeta Fatto apposta per me Mi chiedo che fai stasera Stasera torna a casa con me Ma chi siamo veramente? Quando nessuno ci guarda Il bello del sole che c'è sempre Si nasconde tra le stelle Ti ricordi chi sei? Quando riparti da zero Io mi ricordo di noi Di quanto lontano ci sembrava il cielo Guardami Non ci servono parole Portami Dove non importa dove scrivimi Senza fare il mio nome Siamo di un altro pianeta Yeah.